Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening. Well, Lloyd, we're going to have on our show tonight another one of my wonderful privacy heroes, and that's Pam Dixon, who is the founder of the World Privacy Forum and started it back in November of 2003. As an author and a researcher, she has consistently broken critical new ground in her work. She has researched and written the first report on medical identity theft, and she had a subsequent one, and she's brought that topic to the public for the very first time. Medical identity theft now is widely acknowledged as a huge issue and a very important issue that we have to address. And in 2008, a California law was passed based on Pam's research, and she has also worked on medical identity theft issues nationally and internationally through her nonprofit public interest research work with the World Privacy Forum. She has done other research on fraudulent internet sites, and that led to the FTC's enforcement actions against imposter domains. She also was the principal investigator and author of the first sector-wide study of job applicant privacy, and that report was released in November 2003. She's done so much great work that she was awarded the Consumer Excellence Award in 2008. In addition to all her national and her international work on world privacy, she also serves as co-chair of the California Privacy and Security Advisory Board, which is a state-level board uh, reporting to the California Secretary of Health. Pam was formerly a research fellow with the Privacy Foundation at Denver University's Sturm School of Law, And there she researched and she wrote about technology-related privacy issues. In addition to all this, she's written extensively about technology, both as a book author and a media columnist for the San Diego Union-Tribune. And she's written seven books for major publishers, including two critically acclaimed books about technology and consumers, 
and she wrote the first book to ever be published about the subject of online job searching. That's a book by Random House. She went on to be a finalist for the Computer Press Awards. Her book on distance education is a classic and is used in college classrooms today. So Pam is quoted in the media, and she's been in various publications, including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Time, Fortune, U.S. News and World Report, Newsweek, Businessweek, the Los Angeles Times, the San Francisco Chronicle, USA Today, just on and on and on. And she's appeared on television in Good Morning America, CBS News, 48 Hours, BBC, NBC, ABC, CNN, Fox, PBS, and MSNBC, and NPR. And we are so thrilled that she's joining us on KUCI. So thank you, Pam. I know you've been like a world traveler this year. It's been a lot of fun. I know you were recently in Japan at a privacy conference, too. That must have been fun. It was. It was um, It was called the International Privacy and Security Conference 2008. It was actually um, our first uh, international conference that we hosted. And we were really looking at um, how privacy protection works in Asia, the U.S., and also Europe, and how that uh, interrelates in, in areas such as cloud computing and uh, healthcare and so on and so forth. So it was, it was a really terrific conference, and it was a great experience. So what do you think about privacy in Asia? Yeah. Is, how does it compare with ours? Well, it's, it's just a whole different ball of wax, really. Uh, privacy in Asia, um, there's as you might imagine, completely different sets of laws and also cultural values as well. So um, it's actually a little bit difficult to compare. Um, for example, um, in bankruptcy, um, there are certain you know, differences in the law where uh, data is not protected for a certain period of time depending on how it's handled. So uh, there, are, there are very big differences, and it's, um, they're not trivial. No, big mindset, and, and different even in Europe. The, the, the European Union has such a different approach, the, you know, the opt-in as opposed to opt-out. So it must have been fascinating. I want to come next time. <laughs> well, we're having it next year. So Where is it going to be next year? Tokyo again. Oh. Yeah, so like did Tokyo. you have a lot of sushi? Uh, no. <laughs> Too busy. Did you learn any Japanese while you there? A little bit. Right. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your expertise here in medical identity theft. For my audience, why don't you help them understand what exactly is medical identity theft? Medical identity theft is, is basically, I mean, the simplest definition. It's when someone uses your um, identity information or anyone's identity information to acquire medical goods or services in uh, your or someone else's name, someone else's other than theirs. And it can happen a number of ways. Um, a lot of press has been given to medical identity theft, and often the press will discuss individual victims. In other words, this person stole a wallet and stole, you know, Jane or John's identity, and this was medical identity theft. And this does happen. It does happen frequently, but the majority of cases actually are committed by insiders within hospitals typically or clinics, and they, they steal identities on a, a large scale. So, for example, in Cleveland Clinic, which is a, a nationwide chain of um, healthcare providers, in Cleveland Clinic there was a, a woman named Isis Machado, and she worked uh, uh, at Cleveland Clinic, and she stole over 1,000 identities because she had access to their billing records, and she sold them uh, to um, another guy, a lovely <laughs> guy who wanted to then do all sorts of false billing and all sorts of uh, nasty identity theft sorts of activities with the information. And this is 
actually the more typical scenario that, that we see. So um, the, in its simplest definition, though, it, it's basically it's when someone takes your identity and they use it for medical goods or services. And the, the core harm and the core end result of any medical identity theft activity typically is that changes are made to your healthcare files. Right. And that's the real problem. And that's really what alerted me to this problem in the very first place, way, way, way back in, in uh, 2005. And, you know, no one was talking about this, and uh, the, the hospitals weren't helping victims. It was just a disaster. So uh, I really felt like uh, the World Privacy Forum needed to do something and, and expose this issue and research it and, you know, bring it to the public. Exactly, and we're so glad you did. How prevalent is medical identity theft? Do we have any kind of statistics from the FTC? Well, we have statistics from a number of places. Uh, the Federal Trade Commission actually is not tasked with looking at anything medical. Um, it's not part of their agency purview. So that really falls to the Department of Health and Human Services. So when I was writing the first report, I spent about a half a year um, doing Freedom of Information Act requests to Department of Health and Human Services. And um, I found all the data I could that was available through FOIA on this, you know, crime. And what we found is if you look at all the different, you know, pieces of the puzzle, like uh, the Department of Health and Human Services is just huge. You've got um, Medicare, Medicaid, one of the largest databases in the world of consumer information. You've got... Um, You've got the Food and Drug Administration under HHS. You've got, um, you know, all... How about the Veterans Administration? Yeah, well, the VA is just a little bit of a different animal. Um, They have some of their own governance. But in general, HHS is just huge. Mm -hmm. But um, what we did find, um, we found through all the FOIAs that the HHS data showed that approximately 3% um, of people who complained about identity theft were victims of medical forms of identity theft. Then we looked at what the FTC had just to see if maybe they had anything. Right. And what we found were over 19,000 complaints that had been made to the FTC over a long period of time about this issue. It's just no one had ever noticed them. So we went through those complaints and, you know, started looking for, for numbers and whatnot. What we found was approximately the same number um, the FTC yields a slightly different number just from looking at the complaints and comparing them to other statistics. And that was somewhere between 2.7 and 3.2% of all victims of identity theft were victims of medical identity theft. So when the report came out, the first number that we published was um, there were at least 250,000 victims to maybe half a million victims of medical identity theft. And that's and a huge number. That's and a huge number. Yes. The problem with that number, and we knew it when we published it, the problem is that it did not have a denominator. We couldn't say per year. We thought it was per year, but we couldn't say it because we just, we weren't comfortable. We didn't have a nationwide study. But we wrote to the FTC in a public comment period, and we asked them to do, uh, when they did their national identity theft survey, to include medical identity theft questions, and they did. Right. So their most recent survey, um, they actually came out with a really good definitive number as a starting point, and that is it was a national survey of about 5,000 people. These are people who knew they were victims of identity theft, and of those people, Precisely 3% were victims of medical identity theft, which is 250,000 approximately people per year. 
Yeah. So now so we you have were right on. You were actually right on. We were right on. And <laughs> I can't tell you how happy I was. <laughs> right. But, you know, we spent a lot of time developing that, that number. So it really does look like it's about 3% of all known victims. And um, that's about, like I said, it's about a quarter of a million people a year. But the thing is, is, that's people who know their victims. Right. And how about all the people who don't know? Right. And the problem with medical forms of identity theft is that this particular kind or variety of identity theft hides really well. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some services that tout and say, oh, we'll help you find your identity theft. But you know what? Medical forms of identity theft are very, very hard to detect. You can't always detect them with checking your credit report and that, you know, that sort of thing. Right. It's not going to appear in there. In fact, the people who've, who've contacted us who were victims of medical identity theft really found out in, in really insidious ways. Mm-hmm. You know, one woman found out when she couldn't get a job because she had some supposedly some mental illness that in- interfered with her ability to handle the job, which she'd never had that. She was never diagnosed as bipolar. Yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and see, that's, well, at least she found out, did they give uh, her um, adverse notice under FCRA for Credit Reporting Act? No. Um, She actually found out about it when she got some of her medical records and saw that these diagnoses were on there. Oh, yeah, wow, that's yeah. horrible. It, it, it was, and, and to, you know, she's still fighting some of it, but she did, we were able to get some of that off, but it's been a huge battle, which we'll talk about more in a few minutes. But I think people get a little confused between identity theft and medical identity theft and healthcare fraud. Can you kind of explain what the nuances are with that? Yeah, basically, healthcare fraud is a very, very big, big issue. That's when, you know, you know con artists will swindle you know, uh, you know, pills or wheelchairs or things like this. And right. uh, there are many, many forms of um, healthcare fraud. Medical identity theft is a form, it is one form of healthcare fraud. So in essence, if you really wanted to be, you know, very clear about it, you could say medical identity theft is a subset of healthcare fraud. Um, in terms of um, the reason that uh, when we wrote the report, I called it medical identity theft, it was just a very simple way to segregate it from financial identity theft. The, the big difference is this. When someone steals your credit card or your credit card number and they run around and have a shopping spree, um, you, you really have a lot of rights, actually, um, under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, which is a really it's one of the, the stronger privacy laws that we have in the United States. Really, it gives you the right to see your credit report, get your credit score, and to correct this information. And, and have it deleted. And have it definitively deleted if it is not accurate. Right. Now, there are a lot of problems with this. I mean, sometimes uh, there are not honest brokers in terms of, you know, uh, collection agencies. I mean, there are definitely, you know, some glitches sure. here and there. But uh, Yeah, it's a challenge for people no matter what. That's yeah. right. But in general, people do have, you know, certain rights and Really, there, it's, it's, quite, it's quite a good privacy law, I think. Right, and there's, there's actual procedures that you can follow that you can look at, for example, the FTC, and you know step one, step two, step right. three. Right. And, and there, there is a whole protocol, whereas that hasn't happened, in, except for what you've done in <laughs> medical identity theft. Well, the problem is, is that um, some of this crime falls under a completely different law, which is called HIPAA, 
And HIPAA is not a privacy law. Um, right. People tend to refer to HIPAA, which is a f- kind of a federal, um, uh, people call it a federal, federal medical privacy law. It really isn't. HIPAA was just designed to help certain information flows. <laughs> um, but what happens is that, for example, let's say, let's just do a comparison. So your credit card number gets stolen. You've got a shopping spree. Under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, you don't even realize you have these rights, but you can you can go and you can correct any you know fraudulent charges. You can delete them. You can get a copy of your credit report. You can even do it online. Congress mandated a couple of years ago through an update to the Fair Credit Reporting Act that you have free access once a year to each of your credit bureau files through um, annualcreditreport.com or the free toll-free number you can call. But if your medical identity is stolen or if your identity is stolen and used for medical purposes, good luck getting a copy of your health care file. Right, um, and people talk about, you know, when they did the 2003 update for, for the Fair and Accurate Credit Transaction Act, they mm-hmm. did say you could get your Medical Information Bureau report once a year, but that isn't complete, is it, Pam? From the, and from the Medical MIB. Information Bureau? Yeah. Oh, well, medical, look, here's the deal. You're... You know, there's so much misunderstanding about that. Um, your healthcare files. So let's say that you have um, someone has stolen your medical identity. The way it often works, and I'm just going to give a real example. The way it uh, has worked for a lot of people is that someone will go into a hospital, and uh, we'll use kind of a simple example. They'll get a couple of surgeries. They'll get it in your name. Right. And then you will, let's say, get the medical bills and you go, what? I didn't have these surgeries. Well, then you go to the hospital. You say, I'd like my medical records. It looks like someone has stolen my identity. Usually the very first thing that happens is that the hospital clamps down and will not give you these medical records. Right. That's what they try and do and say, hey, you don't have any right to it if it, if it wasn't you. Right. <laughs> and, and I have to tell you, there are some hospitals that um, will abide by that position and it doesn't matter what you do, they will not give up the records. Um, they do have a point under HIPAA. It's a very fine point. I think it's a misunderstanding, but, you know, there have been lawsuits over this already. Um, uh, and, however, and they're saying that it's a, it's a privacy right that you have no right to see. If you're saying it's not your medical record, they have that you no have right no to right see. to see it. Right. right. So you and shouldn't tell them that, it, that you're a victim of identity theft actually, until afterwards, what, right? Yeah, that's what we say. <laughs> As we say that all the time. If you are the victim of medical identity theft, one of the worst things you could do is tell the health care provider that, that that is the case. Just go and get the records that are in your name. <laughs> and then tell them that you're a victim yeah. of identity theft. But right. the thing is, is that the, the bottom line here, though, is you had asked about the, you know, the overarching you know, differences. And right. the big difference here is that under HIPAA, you do not have an absolute right to delete the information that is fraudulent from your record, and here is where it gets really problematic because under HIPAA, you're supposed to have the right to get your healthcare files, but that's been very difficult for a lot of victims in, in our experience. Um, not everyone, but a lot. And the the under HIPAA, there's no right whatsoever of an absolute deletion, and uh, this this right there causes a lot of problems for victims because you just right off the bat don't have the same rights. The other issues um, that uh, really make it different is that the harms are different. So if your credit card number is stolen, you can call and get a new credit card. If your health identity is stolen, sometimes this can prevent you from getting employment. It can, 
it can prevent you from getting insurance or get different insurance rates. Or yeah, not only health insurance but life insurance and disability insurance. Right. But here's the problem. Yeah. Ultimately, if if you show up at a hospital unconscious and it, this has happened, you can actually get improper health care based on someone else's records in your file. Right. If they have a different blood type and they want to give you a blood transfusion, you could be dead. Yeah. The the main they they a lot of the the blood typing has been caught. What tends to really be a problem for these victims, believe it or not, it's something seemingly simple, which is allergies to medications. Right. And also um, drug interactions. That's actually, um, when, when we talk to victims, that's really one of the things that comes up quite a bit. And when we talk to healthcare providers who have had to work with this, that's, it comes up a bit with them, too, because um, these are more hidden. You can't test for these quite as quickly in emergencies. Um, if someone has an amoxicillin, allergy. You may not find out until they, you know, demonstrate that to you. Exactly. Yeah, so that really is a a huge problem for people, and it's just it's just wrong. <laughs> no, I, re- I remember years ago that um, I spoke with a doctor, a woman doctor, who was trying to get disability insurance, and this wasn't identity theft, but it was similar to what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Someone had marked um, a form wrong that made it look like that she had had uterine cancer. Mm. And she couldn't get she couldn't get that fixed, and it, she didn't. They just did the form wrong, and somehow she was unable to get disability insurance. Wow! So even if you have an erroneous record, it's it's similar, only it's worse because it really isn't just a, even a mistake. It's it's fraudulent. It's deliberate. Yeah, and you know the point that that we make a lot with healthcare providers is that look, you know, you can. Um, if you don't change this information, then you've got some liability issues. And so this often is a persuasive argument for them, and they'll, you know, reconsider. But one of the interesting things that's happened in the kind of post-medical identity theft uh, report era, (laughs) you know, is all of a sudden a lot of big industry kind of healthcare groups got together and started developing, quote-unquote, guidelines and the guidelines have been created largely by industry, and they don't think about the consumer. They don't think about the patient. And this is a problem. And What are they um, thinking about, their own liability? Their own liability and, and all sorts of other kind of process issues on how the files are handled and whatnot. So I think that there's a lot more work to do in terms of how uh, victims are treated and what kind of rights they have. And it's, it's, I think we have a lot more work to do here. We're speaking with Pam Dixon, who is the founder and the director of the World Privacy Forum. They have wonderful information on their website at worldprivacyforum.org, which you can visit. And you can also see Pam's information on our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. And you can link right to her website from there as well. So let's get back to get about if a healthcare worker. You were saying that a lot of times it's a dirty insider who does this, mm-hmm. and and they do it for for money, right? Because they can sell this information, and that information is valuable to then sell to others to get free healthcare or or just to do some billing, right? Yeah, you know it's funny. Um, I was actually um, on a, a radio show right after the report came out, and no one had really heard of this, and it was actually a public radio show. And um, a caller called in and said, you know, 
what kind of insiders are doing this? I said, well, usually it's, you know, organized crime has infiltrated the hospital and there's a gang involved or, you know, kind of the Russian mafia. And the guy laughed at me and he goes, well, I don't believe that for a second. And he hung up. (laughs) And it was like, no one believed me because it was just too weird to be real, you know, or true. But here's the deal. That's exactly what happens. And unfortunately, there's just case after case. And these are all, um, you know, cases that have been prosecuted by, uh, you know, various district attorneys and whatnot. And uh, what tends to be the model here is that, you know, something very popular is especially, you know, organized crime will just move into an impoverished part of town in, a, in an urban setting, and they will simply buy up an existing medical clinic. And they will then take out ads for free medical exams or free food or free um, x-rays, anything like that, and they'll lure a lot of people on public health in, Medicare, Medi-Cal, Medicaid, that sort of thing, and they'll get all these people in and in order to get health care or their free x-ray or free treatment or free milk or food, they'll um, say, okay, well, we'll need a copy of your insurance card, standard operating procedure, right? Right, that's what people think. Yep, so they take a copy of their card, they offer them the free treatment which may or may not be given by a real nurse or doctor, (laughs) by the way. And then they send them on their merry way. And then for the next six months to a year, they proceed to start billing that insurance for very small amounts of money for something quite innocuous that seems like it might go with that person. And typically this is done over um, uh, a very small amount over a large number of people. So you might have 500 people being billed for like, um, uh, lung tests or breathing tests or a breathing, um, you know, treatment that's very popular or has been at some times. And that's the sort of thing that happens. And unless Medicare's computers or silos pick up the billing anomalies, um, this just goes undetected. The people have uh, a big payday between $1 and $2 million. The biggest case is $150 million or thereabouts. And then they just close up shop and then either go and have fun with their money or just move to a new part of the country and start all over again. Right. Now, that one wouldn't necessarily create a, a harmful medical file. It does. Oh, that one does, too, because, oh, yeah, because then they've, they've got something that they just bill, and it's not really even a true uh, procedure but they bill and they say that there's some kind of problem when there really isn't. Is that yeah, what you Yeah, I'll give you I an example. Okay. Yeah. yeah, and because, see, what happens is, for example, there's a very famous case out of Boston, Dr. Skodnick. He decided he wanted a bigger house, uh, so he started billing his patients' um, uh, families. So he had legitimate patients, and then he'd figure out their family names and then start billing insurance for the family members. So, for example, if one family member, one kid was going to this Dr. Skodnick, well, the father, he started billing the father for uh, psychiatric incidences and suicidal thoughts, and eventually he put the father on the medical record in drug treatment because it, was, it really paid out well to the Dr. Skodnick. Well, eventually, um, you know, one of these people, uh, actually one of the, the fathers applied for a job with the Boston Police Department. It was denied employment. They did the right thing. They, they gave him an adverse notice and told him why. And they said, you know, we can't hire someone who, 
who tried to commit suicide, and he said, excuse me? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. It, there it was in his medical record. And he's like, I don't mean to be rude, but this is my kid's child psychologist. Um, this this isn't me. And the whole, it unwent, it was the, you know, loose piece of yarn that unraveled the whole ball of, you know, yarn. And what happened is that, um, you know, this this all came to light, and uh, he had changed the parent's medical file to match the fake bill. And see, that's how... Um, healthcare fraud works in this area. Not only do you put in a fake bill, in order to get it through the system, you've got to change the health file, the medical file, to match mm-hmm. the fake bill. So you get a fake medical entry in the file to match the fake bill. And this is the core harm. It's such a problem. But um, there was one case in, um, in California, actually, called the Juga case. It was a Russian mafia case. And what had happened is that one woman who had a um, disabled son who all of a sudden she figured out um, that he had been billed for 70, very, you know, like $15, very small amounts, breathing treatments, and he had never had those. So she called up um, her insurance company. She's like, this isn't, this isn't right. And the insurance company fraud investigators t- took over, and they un- unraveled the whole ball of yarn. So you, typically it's one, one instant or just some very small things that... That you might overlook. And, you know, a lot of the times when I get my insurance bill or something that's been billed and I see something on my blue shield, it's very difficult to read, Pam. Yeah, it is. They're they're not exactly, uh, you know, bedtime reading. Right. (laughs) You know, because they'll have some code, for example, and you don't even know what that code is. Yeah, it's not easy. So you you don't even know if it's right or not half the time. Yeah, and it's very difficult for people to be proactive in in some circumstances. And sometimes, especially when there's private insurance involved, um, we've had a lot of cases where victims don't even get the bills anymore because the thief or the perpetrator has changed the billing address. And um, in some cases, um, especially when you've got a clinic takeover, you know, where the bad guys have just simply bought the clinic, they have all the power to change the billing address because it looks like the doctor, you know, themselves is changing the billing address. And here's the rub. Under HIPAA, if you want to change your medical file, if you want to, you know, correct it, yes. you have to go to the health care provider that created that record, right? Right. So, like, for example, when Dr. Skodnik uh, put all those fictitious entries in the parents' files, those parents would have to get the record corrected by Dr. Skodnik. Isn't that just wicked? Yeah, I'm sure he wants to do that. <laughs> yeah, well, he ended up getting convicted and doing some juicy time in jail. <laughs> oh, but, yeah. you know, um, there is a very interesting court transcript of what happened to some of these victims. Now, was uh, he convicted um, under HIPAA, or what did they actually convict him under besides fraud? Did they also use HIPAA? to convict him, or what did they use to convict him? Do you remember? You know, I don't remember offhand. I'd have to go back and look at the case. But typically what happens is that these are done under a variety of laws, and whatever sticks best is what they prosecute under. I know of three uh, cases that were prosecuted under HIPAA, but it's more rare. Typically um, they'll catch them under identity theft, uh, aggravated identity theft, uh, some health care fraud statutes. They get them under, uh, you know... Anything they can. Anything they can, yeah. <laughs> and that's good. Yeah, I mean, and you know, some of the some of the states have some pretty decent um, identity theft uh, laws, and that has been very helpful in some of these cases. So, um, you know, one, again, one of the classic cases is the, the Cleveland Clinic case. So that, that's always a, you know, they, they had a, quite a few things thrown at them in that one. <laughs> right. 
Pam, when people call the World Privacy Forum, let's say they've seen your report or they've seen you on TV or they've heard something that you've done, um, are, are you able to assist them to get the healthcare provider to do something different? I mean, are, are you able to do that as a, as a privacy advocate? Yeah, we're, we're actually a public interest research group. So we view more advocacy as trying to lobby, and we actually try not to do that very hard. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so um, we, our, our mission is really um, research and consumer education. So right. when victims call, that falls in the consumer education you know, category, and we really work very hard with the victims who call us and work hard to get them help. Sometimes we're effective and sometimes we're not. If we're not effective... Um, we will send them to an attorney uh, to proceed because um, in some cases, we've had some very dangerous cases where um, healthcare providers absolutely refuse to give people their records. And uh, these were dangerous conditions that were put into their healthcare files. So typically, um, you know, and this was very early on. We don't have this happen very much anymore. But very early on, healthcare providers would really dig their heels in and then we'd have to you know, usually, you know, there would have to be some further steps and some letters and then some relenting. But more recently, uh, we found that the provider community has been much, much better educated about this. Well, and, I think, you're, yeah. you know, you've done a lot to help that happen, you yeah, know, we, by, we by bringing actually, this to the forefront so that people are even aware of it. Because before, they could hide it or say, like the guy who, you know, hung up on the radio show, is that, what, you crazy, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we don't get much of that anymore. No, So no. One, of the, one of the things we did is in 2007, um, I went and I spoke to AHIMA, which is the American Health Information Management Association, and basically all in one room were about 6,000 of all the people in the nation that deal with the nation's health care records <laughs> in hospitals. And I gave a talk about this, and um, I was so pleased to do that because in one fell swoop, it educated a huge swath of the, the health care providers. And I really noticed a difference. After that point, the victims who called us had really different experiences, and there was much better understanding. And then AHIMA went and started developing their own guidelines for medical identity theft. And, you know, I have objections to some of the things they did, but the really good thing is that now so many more hospitals know about this. And um, when it happens, there's just simply more awareness, so people, you know, have more recourse. And I do think that um, this is on the same kind of trajectory that financial forms of identity theft were on 15 years ago. Exactly. Yeah, in the early days, people who were victims of financial identity theft. And I think you had to work with some of them yourself, Mark. Oh, yeah, and I was one of them. You know, I was yeah. one of the early ones and, yeah, and yeah, had I mean, to educate people exactly. Yeah, and you had to usually call an attorney to get any help. And, you know, now things have changed so, so much. Now it's just the very toughest cases uh, where people need, you know, extra help. And there's a procedure, and by and large, uh, if something rotten happens to you know people in the area of financial identity theft, there's so much information and so much help. There are organizations that are dedicated to helping victims. You've got Identity Theft Resource Center. This is all they do. Right. And so, and that's a good thing. That that means that that whole issue has matured, and there's there's pathways available for for consumers who've been victimized to get help. We just don't have that quite yet with medical identity theft. But it's getting there. It's so much better than it was in 2006. Right. And I think, 
you know, as long as we all keep working hard on it, I think that we'll eventually develop those pathways. But the thing is, is that I think that the, the only warning I would issue here is that, you know, it can't be the Department of Health and Human Services sitting in an ivory tower that says, oh, well, we're going to fix medical identity theft with a report. Uh-uh, it doesn't work that way. No. You've got to really involve the patients, and you've got to really be fair. You've got to involve the Federal Trade Commission that has long experience in, uh, with identity theft. You've got to really, you know, kind of broaden the net. So I think that uh, there's more work to do, but I do see uh, the light at the end of the tunnel. Right. I think people are learning more and more now that they should call the Federal Trade Commission because they were the repository, really, for complaints for identity theft. Mm-hmm. And for they those, still are. Yeah, they still are. And, and I remember when I testified in Congress on the bill that actually made that happen, which was, you know, the Identity Theft Deterrence Act. Right. And and I testified with the Federal Trade Commission, and I remember when they first put up the website. So now a lot of people do know that they can go to ftc.gov slash ID theft or they can call 877-ID-THEFT and call and make a complaint, and they can get some referrals. And I think that now that you've worked with them also, the fact that they're more aware of medical identity theft. Oh, and they, they, they've and, been great. Yeah, and they can kind of help to delineate the different forms. I know even with workers' comp ID theft, you know, I hear everything from all the victims that call us, whether it's medical identity theft or some kind of government benefit identity theft, or criminal identity theft. You know, it's it's unfortunate that people are realizing that they can steal someone's identity to avoid prosecution or to get all sorts of other kinds of benefits. That right, they, and, oh. you know, <clears throat> we just, you know, we just are, one of the things that we're asking um, going forward, and we're hoping that the Obama administration does, is that, um, the Federal Trade Commission becomes the repository for all forms of identity theft because I think as time goes on, we'll see a maturing of identity theft and we'll see financial forms, medical forms, and we'll see all sorts of other exotic forms start to crop up, as you mentioned. Yes. And I just don't think we should have like 18 different agencies dealing with this one problem. Yes, because, because consumers have no idea where to go. If no, they have, if they have one place to go first and then right. they need to be referred out. If they need to be. If they need to be, right. Yeah, yeah. because a lot of these forms overlap. We have found that many victims of financial identity theft are also victims of the medical. We know that that number is about 3%. And um, yeah, you know, they could be, usually they the could... medical people have a little bit of both in there. It's very rare for a person to just be a medical identity theft victim. We find many more, you know, kind of dual victims. Yeah, and I had a, a lady that called me who, who found out that her imposter had gone in and gotten a um, some kind of plastic surgery with the Beverly Hills. God, I'm um, kidding. No, I'm not kidding. Beverly and, Hills medical identity theft. Yes, you, gotta, you can't believe I'm that. I'm not kidding. Stuff. Yeah, and she had, yeah, and she found out about it when she started getting billing, you know? Yeah, that's interesting. And, yeah. you know, years ago, and I mean like in 1998 or mm-hmm. 1999, I got a call from a woman who, this was a real strange one because she had a lot of different kind of uh, identity theft, but one of the medical identity theft, which was the first time I ever heard of it, she went to her mother's funeral in Chicago. She was from Santa Barbara. She put her purse down on the conveyor belt and someone stole it, you know, when she got into O'Hare, went to her mother's funeral she came back and 
um, she had gotten a new job and she couldn't, um, you know, she was trying to get a job as a CPA and they told her, well, you know what? Your credit is so bad, we can't hire you as a CPA because you have to have good credit. Mm. And um, she saw her credit, and then she started getting bills from a hospital in Chicago for the baby that was born to her, okay, under her name in Chicago. So someone used her name, and, and then she started getting all these bills for a baby that was born to her. Now, can you imagine that this baby is is named after her? And then maybe could be her heir. Who knows what could, could happen all along. Yeah, the baby stuff is really hard to deal with. We, we get those victims from time to time. And um, one of the hardest um, cases or class of cases that we have to deal with are uh, men who are listed as fathers of babies. Right. And then the... Child first, support. Yeah, it's child support, but it's worse than that. Some of them just disappear. And they get the um, baby paid for, and then they disappear and it leaves the father with a couple of things. Number one, a really difficult marital situation if, if he happens to be married. And, he does, and this child is not his. Yeah, and right. he, he says, this kid isn't mine, but, you know, meanwhile, um, how do you prove that? And it gets very, very difficult in some states, depending on the state law and depending on, you know, if newborn samples are kept, you know, what happens to, you know, the Guthrie cards that are taken at, at birth, you know, the genetic samples. Right. It, it Different states have different procedures, et cetera, et cetera. So um, some states you can go and you can prove that you're not the father. Some states, you, you know, it's, it's not, as, not as easy. But if the kid is around, if the child is still around, you can do a genetic uh, test and, and prove, um, you know, your innocence or your lack of relationship. But if there's no person left and you're just left holding the bag, it's like it's so difficult for these people, typically what they have to do is kind of reconstruct the entire fraud, and this is where you really hope that your perpetrator is also um, committing other forms of identity theft, right. like financial. <laughs> right, because then there at least you can trace that yeah. and find them, where, yeah. the, where the money's going. Yeah, and it's really helpful. In one really difficult case where um, uh, the, there was a father listed, and this is in Southern California in, in Long Beach. He was listed as a father. The mother disappeared. And he just had so much trouble until his imposter bought a truck. And it was like, oh, thank heavens. <laughs> you know, he never found his imposter, but he was able to clear himself with the fraudulent use of his information for other areas. Wow. So it all fit together. He got the police report. He finally got his life back in order. Oh, my goodness. That's horrible. Yeah. We're speaking with Pam Dixon. Uh, she is wonderful. She's a writer. She's an author. She's a researcher. She's brilliant. She is the founder of the World Privacy Forum. You can find out more about her at worldprivacyforum.org and also at our website at KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. And she has been researching at, at great length about medical identity theft Let's switch a little bit to about these data breaches. We've heard about myriad data breaches, and many of them have been hospitals, doctors. Now, some of these big companies, you know, uh, university hospitals, we've heard about. You know, I hear about these small breaches in doctor's offices um, and small clinics because they'll call me and say, what do I do? You know, how do I do this? Mm-hmm. But they aren't big enough that they're going to be public. Do you know what I mean? That yeah, All I they don't. have to do is write the letters. So 
What do you think about all these data breaches at medical facilities? What impact do they have on med- medical identity theft? Yeah, it depends on what kind of breach it is. Um, there are some breaches that, you, you, so let's say that there's a health researcher and they've left a, a, a laptop in the car and it's encrypted and, and then stolen, um, and they decide to notify anyhow. I, I think the likelihood in those breaches is, is so slim that anything's going to happen. You really want that information encrypted. But if you've got information that's been plastered over the web, as it has been in some cases, right, and it remains up for days, weeks, months, that can really be a problem. Yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, what as you know, you know this, um, the, the, especially if there's like an identity theft ring, they really like to season and cure that information. They like to um, let it sit around for about a year and then start to use it. Right, right. Yeah. And then they figure, they figure that you uh, won't be worried about it at that time anymore. Right, and know? the credit reporting has ended. Yeah, yeah. And also they figure, well, look, now everybody let their, their uh, you know. Monitoring, yeah. Yeah, let their monitoring go. And they also think, well, look, people won't know about this. And I can, and they also sell it. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they trade it. Yeah, they sell and trade and then retrade and resell. So Yeah, by the time you can't even trace it back. It gets very difficult. So, you know, I think that um I think the jury is still out on some of this. We we know some cases where there was identity theft afterward, um Providence, the Providence data breach, there were some victims. Um uh, we do know of, of medical data breaches where there have been victims. Um we know of other data breaches where there haven't been victims. Um Something that we see in the data breaches is that because uh, medical data is so lucrative, um, when it's an intentional breach, when someone has intentionally come after the data, in other words, it's been an insider who's breached it, right. um, we find that that's where you really see you know, more identity theft than if it's just some accidental crime of opportunity where you know, the person's stealing the, um, you know, the laptop you know, they don't even really understand uh, what's on the, the disk drive, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Yeah. Now, are there, you were talking before about HIPAA and that, you know, about protections and that it's really, you know, a disclosure statute, but are there any um, any real protections or are there any proposed protections under HIPAA for nope. identity theft victims? Nope. None. Um, well, I shouldn't say that. There's a, there are some bills that will probably move in Congress um, next, in 2009. And um, uh, the bills have some language about um, the, that patients have, must have the right, the absolute right, to see and change their information. But the thing is, is that these bills really... Um, at this point in time, at this reading, they can create a lot more problems than they solve. So right now, I would have to say there's been some minimal effort, but it has not at this point been cohesive enough to really produce good results for consumers. I think we'll need a very thoughtful uh, long-term effort to really resolve this problem for consumers. The thing about this issue is I do think it can be solved. I don't think we have an unsolvable issue here. I think we have a solvable problem, but it's going to take uh, effort from really everyone. And it can't just be 
all the hospitals and hospital administrators getting together in a room going, oh, we, we, we want to do this. <laughs> right. We can't have, you know, the self-directed uh, yeah. help. You know, that just doesn't work. Self-regulation, we've seen over and over, self-regulation doesn't work. It, 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 <laughs> it has a very bad track record. It does. It and does. this is too important. Now, do you think that there should be a body of law outside of HIPAA, maybe, that addresses only medical identity theft, or should it be rolled into the Fair Credit Reporting Act? I know I have had medical identity theft victims use the Fair Credit Reporting Act, that section to uh, 609E, to actually get all documentation of the fraud, Mm -hmm. and then also to say that it must be deleted by just kind of analogy. It works sometimes when I get involved and I say this is identity theft, it's just a medical form. But, I mean, should that maybe be elaborated through that area? You know, I really like the Fair Credit Reporting Act. I like its structure. I like its logic. I like that it's a rights-based law. And you know how it works, and um, I, HIPAA just wasn't constructed the same way. Right, and there's no private right of action under HIPAA either. Right, so I think that you know uh, the, I think that we almost need something separate. Yeah, yeah. That that would you know start to address some of this because I don't think HIPAA can be effectively retrofitted to really address the issues. You know, the Federal Trade Commission put out the red flag rules. Um, uh, yeah, and I saw that you wrote with uh, Robert Gum and you wrote a report that I thought was great. And why don't we talk about those? Yeah, because the red flag rules back, they're supposed to be um, compliant with these red flag rules now in May of 2009. Right. So let's talk about what should be some of the red flag rules. Now, here we're sitting on the campus of the University of California, Irvine, there have been a lot of interesting and kind of negative, scandalous things happening at the University of California Irvine Hospital. Mm-hmm. So let's talk, since many people here are affiliated with the University Hospital, what are some red flags that you think um, should be uh, alerting uh, healthcare providers? Well, here's the deal. Um, one of the most basic ones is if someone comes in, and, you know, they have absolutely, uh, they have ID that doesn't match their health care record. That's a problem. Right. And um, he, there's a really difficult two-edged sword here. On one hand, you cannot treat patients like they're the problem. You can't, you know, go in and say, um, you know, I'm going to do a background check on all my patients, you know, to prevent identity theft. Right, you know, right. That's a, that is a huge, huge policy problem in medical identity theft. Right, right. There are hospitals that now take fingerprint scans of Oh, my patients. God. <laughs> so what needs to happen, actually, is that <clears throat> it's, I think it is fine to ask to see a driver's license or an ID of a patient to ask to see it for comparison purposes. Right. And if that driver's license doesn't match their health care file, you've got a problem. But I think it is a further problem and just as difficult of a problem to then scan the driver's license, even if it does match. Let's say you, you, your license matches the file. Right. Um, you scan it and then put it in the file. I think this is a huge identity theft risk. Oh, yes, of course. Huge risk. And so you've got to be really careful with how you treat patient ID. 
and that's that's one really big issue we, we tend to talk about a lot. Um, one of the recommendations that we've made is that you've got to focus on the right approach. You focus on the people inside your organization, not outside it. So, for example, you should you know be looking at how um, people can access um, healthcare systems, um, healthcare computers, healthcare networks. Right, have audit trails and only allow people access who absolutely need it. Right, and there are many people in the health healthcare systems that typically need it, but you can tier the access, and there's a lot of things you can do there. Um, also, um, there really needs to be a, a national level set of procedures that are the same for all institutions. So, for example, um, we know what to do when our financial identity is used, misused, but you know, providers have a range of things that they do when people's medical identity is misused, and it doesn't always match. So many victims of medical identity theft have to work with one, two, three, and up to even, we've heard of 80, a case where someone had to work with 83 different hospitals. Oh, my gosh. So um, if you have different It's a different full-time job for 10 years. Oh, I know. <laughs> Isn't that exhausting to even think about? Yeah. But if you have 83 different procedures that you have to go through to, to correct, this is a problem. So we really believe in national-level procedures. As long as those procedures have been made in concert uh, with with really meaningful um, patient participation and... Like a task force on yeah. that to, to develop that and then have commentary on it like they do with the Federal Trade Commission when, when rules are set forth. Yeah. It seems to me that you should be putting that all together, Pam. Yeah, I think so, too. <laughs> Well, we're going to do a little baby one of those um, uh, in 2009, so we'll keep posted on that. Right, and, <laughs> and have people, you know, the, the the victims need to comment on the challenging things that they're going through to get this done yeah, and, and I, how they're treated. Right, and what the consequences are. Right. Um, something that um, in doing our interviews with hospitals we found was something that uh, we kind of dubbed a John or Jane Doe file extraction, and it's kind of become the name for it. So a John or Jane Doe file extraction, what that means is that let's say that uh, someone either in a hospital or, you know, outside of a hospital, somehow your file has been absolutely loaded with fraudulent information. Right. The way the file extraction works is that all the fraudulent information is deleted outright from your file, and then instead an entry is placed that says, Information, fraudulent information was deleted from this file. It is found at, you know, one, two, three, four, five files. It's just a numer- number remains. Right. The, but the bad information is gone. There's no risk that you'll be mistreated because of the bad information. Right. So it's segregated. So it's not right. like, you know, destroyed forever, but it's segregated into another file. Brand new file. That says this, you know, it may could even say it's like an alias, like an alias file and then your file. Yeah. And it's it's just, it's, it's given a number and, you know, they may never find out who, who committed that crime. Right. But if they do, they can always put that name on it, and it can become part of that perpetrator's medical file if they had a surgery. But um, if they never find it, they can just put a number on it, and it becomes a John or Jane Doe file. And meanwhile, if, if, if a, like a, a healthcare investigator needs to come and, you know, create a trail of where the data went, they can. But meanwhile, the patient, the victim, is safe. And that's a really good solution for this thorny problem, and and it works, and it works really well. No, it's brilliant. You know, I had Deborah Peel, who I'm sure you know, um, 
from she does patient privacy mm-hmm. and and we were talking cuz she's a physician and she was saying that the reason and we were talking a little bit about medical identity theft and I talked to her about some of the cases that I had uh, handled and she said obviously the reason that a lot of the healthcare providers don't want to delete these files is because they're worried about malpractice. They want to have everything showing what they did and what they didn't do. That's correct. And so your idea of segregating and having an alias file or a a separate file, keeping that just in case that were to arise, then that problem is solved. It solves the problem, and it solves both problems, and it does it elegantly, but it keeps the victim safe, and that's what we have to really focus on. Uh, we've got to focus on um, not so much medical malpractice, although it's a concern. Um, we've got to focus on making sure people don't die from this. Exactly. Yeah, so um, and this does that, but it also takes care of the needs of the healthcare provider to have, you know, a trail, a reconstructable trail of where the data goes. The other thing that, that we say um, that really needs to happen is that there, there should be someone at the facility or available within the region who's dedicated to this issue and trained on this issue. Right, like, like an in-house fraud investigator. Right, and, and hopefully though, someone who can deal with patients and who can talk to people and, you know, kind of handhold the victim through it. And, you know, at credit card companies, you can call the fraud department. Who right. do you call at a hospital? There should be someone. There should actually be a fraud department who, someone who is also you know, patient friendly (laughs) to help them through this because like if they want to come in and they're scared to death that they've been the victim of medical identity theft, it might interfere with their own um, patient care. I mean, you need somebody who's going to be sensitive to that. Right. And so that's really, really important to, to get done. And um, those are just some of the suggestions. There's more, but we could go on forever about that. But that's that's the general gist of it. And, you know, the red flag rule applies to, you know, the financial um, sector, but it also applies to the healthcare sector. Exactly. So I think that was a really good first step. I know. And, you know, Lloyd says we are out of time. Do you believe that? We could talk for hours, Pam. You're wonderful. Why don't you just give us your website and tell us what we'll find there, and we'll have to have you back again next year. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> um, the website is worldprivacyforum.org, and you can find information out about financial and healthcare and uh, job search privacy primarily. And um, you can also contact us uh, through our email or through our phone, and we'll be happy to help people who need help. And you have a wonderful list of questions and answers that help people. I thought that was terrific. And uh, we think you're terrific, Pam. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Well, we thank you very much, and we will see you soon, and we will make sure that people go to worldprivacyforum.org. So thank you. Thank you. Good night. Thank you. Good night. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, your host. Join us every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. right here on KUCI. Also, visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy where you can see our upcoming guests and you can download podcasts and write us emails. And thank you and good evening. Stay private. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.